Section 6 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 3. Cartesianism. If we are to draw any useful lines of demarcation in the continuous flux of history, we must neglect anticipations and announcements, and we need not scruple to say that, in the realm of knowledge and thought, modern history begins in the seventeenth century. Ubiquitous rebellion against tradition, a new standard of clear and precise thought which affects even literary expression, a flow of mathematical and physical discoveries so rapid that ten years added more to the sum of knowledge than all that had been added since the days of Archimedes, the introduction of organized cooperation to increase knowledge by the institution of the Royal Society at London, the Academy of Sciences at Paris, observatories, realizing Bacon's Atlantic dream, characterize the opening of a new era. For the ideas with which we are concerned, the seventeenth century centers round Descartes, whom an English admirer described as the Grand Secretary of Nature. Footnote. Joseph Glanville, Vanity of Dogmatizing, page 211. End of footnote. Though his brilliant mathematical discoveries were the sole permanent contribution he made to knowledge, though his metaphysical and physical systems are only of historical interest, his genius exercised a more extensive and transforming influence on the future development of thought than any other man of his century. Cartesianism affirmed the two positive axioms of the supremacy of reason and the invariability of the laws of nature, and his instrument was a new rigorous analytical method which was applicable to history as well as to physical knowledge. The axioms had destructive corollaries. The immutability of the processes of nature collided with the theory of an active providence. The supremacy of reason shook the thrones from which authority and tradition had tyrannized over the brains of men. Cartesianism was equivalent to a declaration of the independence of man. It was in the atmosphere of the Cartesian spirit that a theory of progress was to take shape. 1. Let us look back. We saw that all the remarks of philosophers prior to the seventeenth century, which have been claimed as enunciations of the idea of progress, amount merely to recognitions of the obvious fact that in the course of the past history of men there have been advances and improvements in knowledge and arts, or that we may look for some improvements in the future. There is not one of them that adumbrates a theory that can be called a theory of progress. We have seen several reasons why the idea could not emerge in the ancient or in the Middle Ages, nor could it have easily appeared in the period of the Renaissance. Certain preliminary conditions were required, and these were not fulfilled till the seventeenth century. So long as men believed that the Greeks and Romans had attained, in the best days of their civilization, to an intellectual plane which posterity could never hope to reach, so long as the authority of their thinkers was set up as unimpeachable, a theory of degeneration held the field, which excluded a theory of progress. It was the work of Bacon and Descartes to liberate science and philosophy from the yoke of that authority, and at the same time, as we shall see, the rebellion began to spread to other fields. Another condition for the organization of a theory of progress was a frank recognition of the value of mundane life and the subservience of knowledge to human needs. The secular spirit of the Renaissance prepared the world for this new valuation, which was formulated by Bacon and has developed into modern utilitarianism. There was yet a third preliminary condition. There can be no certainty that knowledge will continually progress until science has been placed on sure foundations and science does not rest for us on sure foundations unless the invariability of the laws of nature is admitted. If we do not accept this hypothesis, if we consider it possible that the uniformities of the natural world may be changed from time to time, we have no guarantee that science can progress indefinitely. 
the philosophy of descartes established this principle which is the palladium of science and thus the third preliminary condition was fulfilled two during the renaissance period the authority of the greeks and romans had been supreme in the realm of thought and in the interest of further free development it was necessary that this authority should be weakened bacon and others had begun the movement to break down this tyranny but the influence of descartes was weightier and more decisive and his attitude was more uncompromising he had none of bacon's reverence for classical literature he was proud of having forgotten the greek which he had learned as a boy the inspiration of his work was the idea of breaking sharply and completely with the past and constructing a system which borrows nothing from the dead he looked forward to an advancement of knowledge in the future on the basis of his own method and his own discoveries and he conceived that this intellectual advance would have far-reaching effects on the condition of mankind footnote compare for instance his remarks on medicine at the end of the discours de la méthode end of footnote the first title he had proposed to give to his discourse on method was the project of a universal science which can elevate our nature to its highest degree of perfection he regarded moral and material improvement as depending on philosophy and science the justification of an independent attitude towards antiquity on the ground that the world is now older and more mature was becoming a current view descartes expressed it like bacon and it was taken up and repeated by many whom descartes influenced pascal who till sixteen fifty four was a man of science and a convert to cartesian ideas put it in a striking way the whole sequence of men he says during so many centuries should be considered as a single man continually existing and continually learning at each stage of his life this universal man profited by the knowledge he had acquired in the preceding stages and he is now in his old age this is a fuller and probably an independent development of the comparison of the race to an individual which we found in bacon it occurs in a fragment which remained unpublished for more than a hundred years and is often quoted as a recognition not of a general progress of man but of a progress in human knowledge to those who reproached descartes with disrespect towards ancient thinkers he might have replied that in repudiating their authority he was really paying them the compliment of imitation and acting far more in their own spirit than those who slavishly followed them pascal saw this point what can be more unjust he wrote quote, than to treat our ancients with greater consideration than they showed towards their own predecessors and to have for them this incredible respect which they deserve from us only because they entertained no such regard for those who had the same advantage of antiquity over them at the same time pascal recognized that we are indebted to the ancients for our very superiority to them in the extent of our knowledge quote, they reached a certain point and the slightest effort enables us to mount higher so that we find ourselves on a loftier plane with less trouble and less glory the attitude of descartes was very different aspiring to begin ab integro and reform the foundations of knowledge he ignored or made little of what had been achieved in the past he attempted to cut the threads of continuity as with the shears of atropos this illusion hindered him from stating a doctrine of the progress of knowledge as otherwise he might have done for any such doctrine must take account of the past as well as of the future footnote he may be reproached himself with scholasticism in his metaphysical reasoning End of footnote. but a theory of progress was to grow out of his philosophy though he did not construct it it was to be developed by men who were imbued with the cartesian spirit three the theological world in france was at first divided on the question whether the system of descartes could be reconciled with orthodoxy or not the jesuits said no the fathers of the oratory said yes 
the jansenists of port royal were enthusiastic cartesians yet it was probably the influence of the great spiritual force of jansenism that did most to check the immediate spread of cartesian ideas it was preponderant in france for fifty years the date of the discourse of method is sixteen thirty seven the augustinus of jansenius was published in sixteen forty and in sixteen forty three arnaud's frequent communion made jansenism a popular power the jansenist movement was in france in some measure what the puritan movement was in england and it caught hold of serious minds in much the same way the jesuits had undertaken the task of making christianity easy of finding a compromise between worldliness and religion and they flooded the world with a casuistic literature designed for this purpose ex opinionum varietate jugum christi suavius deportatur the doctrine of jansenius was directed against this corruption of faith and morals he maintained that there can be no compromise with the world that casuistry is incompatible with morality that man is naturally corrupt and that in his most virtuous acts some corruption is present now the significance of these two forces the stern ideal of the jansenists and the casuistry of the jesuit teachers is that they both attempted to meet by opposed methods the wave of libertine thought and conduct which is a noticeable feature in the history of french society from the reign of henry the fourth to that of louis cans this libertinism had its philosophy a sort of philosophy of nature of which the most brilliant exponents were rabelais and moliere the maxim be true to nature was evidently opposed sharply to the principles of the christian religion and it was associated with sceptical views which prevailed widely in france from the early years of the seventeenth century the jesuits sought to make terms by saying virtually quote, our religious principles and your philosophy of nature are not after all so incompatible in practice when it comes to the application of principles opinions differ theology is as elastic as you like do not abandon your religion on the ground that her yoke is hard jansenius and his followers on the other hand fought uncompromisingly with the licentious spirit of the time maintaining the austerest dogmas and denouncing any compromise or condescension and their doctrine had a wonderful success and penetrated everywhere few of the great literary men of the reign of louis quatorze escaped it its influence can be traced in the maximes of la rochefoucauld and the caractère of la bruyere it was through its influence that moliere found it difficult to get some of his plays staged it explains the fact that the court of louis quatorze however corrupt was decorous compared with the courts of henry the fourth and louis cannes a severe standard was set up if it was not observed the genius of pascal made the fortunes of jansenism he outlived his cartesianism and became its most influential spokesman his provincial sixteen fifty six rendered abstruse questions of theology more or less intelligible and invited the general public to pronounce an opinion on them his lucid exposition interested everyone in the abstruse problem is man's freedom such as not to render grace superfluous but pascal perceived that casuistry was not the only enemy that menaced the true spirit of religion for which jansenism stood he came to realize that cartesianism to which he was at first drawn was profoundly opposed to the fundamental views of christianity his pensées are the fragments of a work which he designed in defense of religion and it is easy to see that this defense was to be specially directed against the ideas of descartes pascal was perfectly right about the cartesian conception of the universe though descartes might pretend to mitigate its tendencies and his fervent disciple malbranche might attempt to prove that it was more or less reconcilable with orthodox doctrine we need not trouble about the special metaphysical tenets of descartes the two axioms which he launched upon the world 
the supremacy of reason and the invariability of natural laws struck directly at the foundations of orthodoxy pascal was attacking cartesianism when he made his memorable attempt to discredit the authority of reason by showing that it is feeble and deceptive it was a natural consequence of his changed attitude that he should speak in the pensee in a much less confident tone about the march of science than he had spoken in the passage which i quoted above and it was natural that he should be pessimistic about social improvement and that keeping his eyes fixed on his central fact that christianity is the goal of history he should take only a slight and subsidiary interest in amelioration the preponderant influence of jansenism only began to wane during the last twenty years of the seventeenth century and till then it seems to have been successful in counteracting the diffusion of the cartesian ideas cartesianism begins to become active and powerful when jansenism is beginning to decline and it is just then that the idea of progress begins definitely to emerge the atmosphere in france was favorable for its reception four the cartesian mechanical theory of the world and the doctrine of invariable law carried to a logical conclusion excluded the doctrine of providence this doctrine was already in serious danger perhaps no article of faith was more insistently attacked by skeptics in the seventeenth century and none was more vital the undermining of the theory of providence is very intimately connected with our subject for it was just the theory of an active providence that the theory of progress was to replace and it was not till men felt independent of providence that they could organize a theory of progress bossuet was convinced that the question of providence was the most serious and pressing among all the questions of the day that were at issue between orthodox and heretical thinkers brunetier his fervent admirer has named him the theologian of providence and has shown that in all his writings this doctrine is a leading note it is sounded in his early sermons in the fifties and it is the theme of his most ambitious work the discourse on universal history which appeared in sixteen eighty one this book which has received high praise from those who most heartily dissent from its conclusions is in its main issue a restatement of the view of history which augustine had worked out in his memorable book the whole course of human experience has been guided by providence for the sake of the church that is for the sake of the church to which bossuet belonged regarded as a philosophy of history the discourse may seem little more than the theory of the de civitate dei brought up to date but this is its least important aspect we shall fail to understand it unless we recognize that it was a pragmatical opportune work designed for the needs of the time and with express references to current tendencies of thought one main motive of bossuet in his lifelong concern for providence was his conviction that the doctrine was the most powerful check on immorality and that to deny it was to remove the strongest restraint on the evil side of human nature there is no doubt that the free-living people of the time welcomed the arguments which called providence in question and bossuet believed that to champion providence was the most efficient means of opposing the libertine tendencies of his day nothing he declared in one of his sermons 1662 quote, has appeared more insufferable to the arrogance of libertines than to see themselves continually under the observation of this ever watchful eye of providence they have felt it as an importunate compulsion to recognize that there is in heaven a superior force which governs all our movements and chastises our loose actions with a severe authority they have wished to shake off the yoke of this providence in order to maintain in independence an unteachable liberty which moves them to live at their own fancy without fear discipline or restraint bossuet was thus working in the same cause as the jansenists he had himself come under the influence of descartes whose work he always regarded with the deepest respect 
the cautiousness of the master had done much to disguise the insidious dangers of his thought and it was in the hands of those disciples who developed his system and sought to reconcile it at all points with orthodoxy that his ideas displayed their true nature malbranche's philosophy revealed the incompatibility of providence in the ordinary acceptation with immutable natural laws if the deity acts upon the world as malbranche maintained only by means of general laws his freedom is abolished his omnipotence is endangered he is subject to a sort of fatality what will become of the christian belief in the value of prayers if god cannot adapt or modify on any given occasion the general order of nature to the needs of human beings these are some of the arguments which we find in a treatise composed by fenelon with the assistance of bossuet to demonstrate that the doctrine of malbranche is inconsistent with piety and orthodox religion they were right cartesianism was too strong a wine to be decanted into old bottles malbranche's doctrine of what he calls divine providence was closely connected with his philosophical optimism it enabled him to maintain the perfection of the universe admitting the obvious truth that the world exhibits many imperfections and allowing that the creator could have produced a better result if he had employed other means malbranche argued that in judging the world we must take into account not only the result but the methods by which it has been produced it is the best world he asserts that could be framed by general and simple methods and general and simple methods are the most perfect and alone worthy of the creator therefore if we take the methods and the result together a more perfect world is impossible the argument was ingenious though full of assumptions but it was one which could only satisfy a philosopher it is little consolation to creatures suffering from the actual imperfections of the system into which they are born to be told that the world might have been free from those defects only in that case they would not have the satisfaction of knowing that it was created and conducted on theoretically superior principles though malbranche's conception was only a metaphysical theory metaphysical theories have usually their pragmatic aspects and the theory that the universe is as perfect as it could be marks a stage in the growth of intellectual optimism which we can trace from the sixteenth century it was a view which could appeal to the educated public in france for it harmonized with the general spirit of self-complacency and hopefulness which prevailed among the higher classes of society in the reign of louis quatorze for them the conditions of life under the new despotism had become far more agreeable than in previous ages and it was in a spirit of optimism that they devoted themselves to the enjoyment of luxury and elegance the experience of what the royal authority could achieve encouraged men to imagine that one enlightened will with a centralized administration at its command might accomplish endless improvements in civilization there was no age had ever been more glorious no age more agreeable to live in the world had begun to abandon the theory of corruption degeneration and decay some years later the optimistic theory of the perfection of the universe found an abler exponent in leibniz whom diderot calls the father of optimism the creator before he acted had considered all possible worlds and had chosen the best he might have chosen one in which humanity would have been better and happier but that would not have been the best possible for he had to consider the interests of the whole universe of which the earth with humanity is only an insignificant part the evils and imperfections of our small world are negligible in comparison with the happiness and perfection of the whole cosmos leibniz whose theory is deduced from the abstract proposition that the creator is perfect does not say that now or at any given moment the universe is as perfect as it could be its merit lies in its potentialities it will develop towards perfection throughout infinite time the optimism of leibniz therefore concerns the universe as a whole not the earth 
and would obviously be quite consistent with a pessimistic view of the destinies of humanity. He does indeed believe that it would be impossible to improve the universal order, not only for the whole but for ourselves in particular, and incidentally he notes the possibility that, in the course of time, the human race may reach a greater perfection than we can imagine at present. But the significance of his speculation, and that of Malbranche, lies in the fact that the old theories of degeneration are definitely abandoned. End of section 6